1969, John Lennon told his wife, Yoko Ono, that she was, get this, heavy. Hmm, let's unpack that. I assume all of y'all know who John Lennon is, but maybe not. Maybe there's some youngsters here today who don't know who John Lennon is. John Lennon was a member of the Beatles, the greatest band ever, and I will fight you on that. Anyways, John Lennon wrote a song about his wife, Yoko Ono, where he told her that she was heavy. The song is titled, I Want You in parentheses, she's so heavy. Now, I don't recommend you husbands ever tell your wife that she's heavy. And definitely don't write a song about it and then put it on one of the best-selling albums of all time. So how did John Lennon get away with calling Yoko Ono heavy? Well, what you may not know, and you may, because I've told you many times, but what you may not know is that in the 60s and in the 70s, the word heavy meant that someone was important, that they were meaningful, deep, and profound. So John Lennon was not saying that Yoko Ono was overweight. He was smarter than that. John Lennon was telling Yoko Ono that she was deep and important to him and meaningful and profound. And that's what the Hebrew word for glory, the Hebrew word kavod for glory, that's what that word means. It means heaviness. It means weightiness. I've told you all this before, but we're looking at God's glory today, so let's hear it again. What is the glory of God? What does that even mean, the glory of God? What does it mean that God is glorious? The Hebrew word for glory in scripture, kavod, means weight, heaviness, importance, weightiness. It's like the hippies used to say, it's like Chet used to say in the 60s and 70s, whoa man, that's heavy. He still says it. That's the idea behind God's glory. It's heaviness, weightiness. And that's what David will talk about in our passage today. So turn to Psalm 29 in your Bibles. David will not ask Yahweh, he will not ask God for anything in this passage. There's no prayer request in this psalm. There's no trouble. There's no sorrow pressing down on him. There's nothing weighing heavy on his heart. There are no enemies breathing down his neck. This is simply a psalm of praise with a little bit of political and polemical edge to it. I'll explain that in a bit. David doesn't ask God for anything in Psalm 29. However, he does do something else that's very staggering. David tells angels what to do. He gets up in their business and says, this is what y'all should be doing. He will get a little bit bossy and a little bit nosy, and he will tell some angels what they need to do in their spare time. He'll tell them what they need to do when they go to church. In Psalm 29, David doesn't ask God for anything. 
because he knows that his most urgent prayer request ultimately is not about his problems, which we've seen over the last few Psalms. That's not his most urgent prayer request. David knows that for God's people, please show me your glory is our greatest prayer. Please, God, show us your glory. That is our greatest prayer. David knows that this was Moses' greatest prayer request when he saw the Lord on Mount Sinai. He said, show me your glory. He wanted to see Yahweh's glory. David would agree with what Ray Ortland said. The most relevant prayer is not God fix my problem, but God show me your glory. So David doesn't ask the Lord for anything in this psalm. Instead, he paints a picture of the glorious triune God. What David and company need most is to see the glory, to see the weightiness of God. And so do we. That's our number one prayer request, or it should be. Show me your glory. Okay, turn to Psalm 29. David is going to bark some orders at some angels. He's going to tell them about how corporate worship in heaven should go down. Psalm 29, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And remember, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters in Hebrew, it's the covenant name Yahweh. So that's how I will read it. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So David starts this psalm off by talking to angels. Maybe you remember that song, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. How do you talk to an angel? Remember that song? This is how you talk to an angel. You tell them, you guys need to worship Yahweh. He tells these heavenly beings to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, to ascribe to God the glory that is due his name. And when David gives these commands to ascribe glory, he also means this by that word glory. That God is the most important or preeminent person in this or any other universe. He's weighty. In fact, we have a saying, what? Throw your weight around. That means you use your influence, you use your importance to get something. That's glory. God is the most important person in the universe. That's why David can boss these angelic beings around. Because Yahweh is the most important person in the universe. So to ascribe glory to Jesus is to say that he is heavy, he is the most important person, he is the most preeminent person in all the universe. It means that we are giving God the credit that he deserves. But then David also tells the angels to give or ascribe strength to Yahweh. Which simply means to recognize that the Lord is the all-powerful God of the universe. He is supreme, sovereign, ruling over all. We were just singing that. He is victorious. No one can thwart him. And obviously, the angels that are in the presence of the Lord know this, don't they? They are in the presence of Yahweh. They are in the presence of the Lord. Think about this. David has never, ever seen God. 
He's never seen the Lord. But he knows the Lord. He knows Yahweh. He knows his character. He knows his attributes. And so David tells these angels who are in the presence of the Lord to give him glory because David, though he has never seen the Lord, knows that God is worthy. And that's why we can call on each other to worship the Lord. None of us have ever seen the Lord with our eyes, and yet we can call on each other to worship the Lord. Our liturgy here has a call to worship at the beginning of the service. We are calling on one another to ascribe glory to Jesus and to worship him. None of us have ever seen Jesus with our eyes, but we can still say to one another, ascribe to Jesus glory and strength. Ascribe to Jesus the glory due his name. Why? Because we know him. Because we know that he is worthy. It's why our mission statement here at Grace is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's our mission because we know that God is worthy even though we've never seen him. But when we say that we glorify God, we don't mean that we are making God glorious in any way. We don't mean that we inflate him or make him bigger or somehow we add to his perfections when we ascribe glory to him. He is who he is. He is the infinitely glorious triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't make him anything. So when we say that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything, we mean that we exist to ignite a passion in you to ascribe to God who he is, to declare him to be who he already is as you enjoy him in everything that you do in this wonderful world that he has made and as you go everywhere in this world that he has made. That's what it means to glorify God. You ascribe to him his weightiness, his heaviness, who he already is, his importance. You tell him, you are the most important person in my life. You are the most important reality, the most important entity in my life. Not me, not my wishes, not my wants. It's you, Jesus. You are the most important thing to me. I could lose it all, Jesus, but if I have you, I'll be okay. When we ascribe glory to Jesus, we don't make him anything. We don't make him glorious. He isn't lacking in glory. Like he's at 97% and he's like, come on guys, can't wait for Sunday. Oh, they're going to give me glory. I'm at 100% glory now. Because I was lacking. You simply ascribe to him who he is. You ascribe to him the glory, the weightiness, the heaviness, the importance of who he is. Ray Ortland says, One of our theological leaders describes the church of our time as a place where God is weightless. What is the weightlessness of God? It's the opposite of his glory. If God makes little impact on the lives of Christians... If our churches are not wonderfully heavy with the felt presence of God, is God being glorified in us? We need to start over again. We need to rediscover God. The adjustments would be more than worth it 
Because his glory is all our happiness. Why does the glory of God sit lightly on believers today? It may be the fault of those of us who are preachers. Is our constant message to the people, behold your God? Or have we changed the subject? We seem to have sunk to the level of quick stop churches where God is expected to lubricate the vehicle of American selfishness. Many churches have never known what it's like for God to come down and dwell among them in glory. People must see and sense that God is beautiful with a beauty they have never known. We want to be a church where people feel the very felt presence of God, the weightiness of God, where people come and they see and they hear that Jesus is beautiful. He's the most important person to us. A church where people cry, glory, Basically, Psalm 29 kind of stuff. But understand that when David says that we give or ascribe glory and strength to the triune God, we don't actually give God anything as if he somehow needed anything from us. We saw this in our series on the undomesticated attributes of God. God does not need us at all. He is, the Latin term is a-se, a-s-e, a-se, That term means he is from himself. We get our our word, his attribute, aseity from that, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Did a sermon on that in the spring. Aseity, God's aseity means that he exists in and of himself. He exists from himself. God's aseity means that he is self-existent and self-sufficient. It means that he has life in himself. It means that he has no needs. He is a God of no needs. Imagine not ever having a need. Imagine not ever having a need for sleep. Imagine not ever having a need for coffee. And that means that he doesn't even need our worship songs. Think about that. God does not need what we do here on Sunday morning at all. He doesn't need our singing. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our acts of service. As A.W. Pink said, God is no gainer even from our worship. It is impossible to bring the Almighty under obligations to the creature. God gains nothing from us. He doesn't need us because he is holy. He is other. He is different. He is set apart. That's part of what God's holiness means is that we have needs all the time. He has no needs. He's different from us. Every other creature, including the angels of Psalm 29, who David is bossing around and telling them to worship, they have needs. They need things. They need God, but not God. He has no needs. And that's the idea behind the phrase in verse 2. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, in the splendor of set-apartness, distinctness. The Lord is arrayed in the splendor of differentness, set-apartness. He's set apart in his heaviness, set apart in his weightiness, his importance. In other words, there is no one like him because he is magnificently glorious. So why do we describe to him glory and strength? Because one, he commands us to. Two, because he is worthy. And three, because 
We've talked about this before. It completes or fulfills our enjoyment of him. So when we praise, it completes our praise. It caps it off. When we ascribe to him glory and strength, it completes our enjoyment of him. It's like when you go see a movie and you come home and you tell people about it, that kind of completes the whole process, right? You go see the movie, you love it, and you got to go tell people about it. And when you tell them about it, you're enjoying it all over again, right? And that kind of completes the whole process. That's what happens when we worship and we praise him. It completes our enjoyment. So in the first two verses, David is telling these angels what to do with their voices. But then in verse 3, David switches, and now he tells us what God does with his voice. He tells us what happens when God speaks. The angels use their voices to describe, I mean, to ascribe glory and strength to Yahweh because Yahweh uses his voice. And when he does use his voice, he makes tree huggers and environmentalists very, very angry. Look at verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes, flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and all in his temple cry glory. They cry heavy. They cry weighty. They cry important. They cry preeminent. The reason David calls on angels and by default the reason he calls on us to ascribe to God glory is because he controls nature. He is sovereign over nature. He controls storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, all of those powerful forces of nature that ravage our land are subject to Jesus. They obey him. Tornadoes are not out there running wild. It looks like they are. They are under the sovereign hand of God. Earthquakes don't just pop up because they decided, hey, we haven't done this in a while. It's California. What do you think? Okay. No. They are under the lordship of Jesus. And when the God of Psalm 29 speaks, he thunders in such a way that storms and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes happen. I mean, think about that. Jesus just speaks. And there's storms, tornadoes, thunder, lightning, hurricane, earthquakes. If Psalm 29 is not the favorite psalm of the Weather Channel, then they need help. picture that David has in mind here is Jesus speaking, and this storm comes up on the Mediterranean Sea, which was very common, and then it would make its way across the land, destroying everything in its place. I mean, that's some voice, isn't it? Just a word from God, and boom, a Hurricanes, tornadoes, trees leveled, lightning strikes, earthquakes, places on the map like Lebanon and Syrian, leaping in the air like calves leaping, like, whoa, what is that? All 
at his voice. Wow. And all the tree huggers freaked out, didn't they? Sorry, tree huggers, Psalm 29 is not playing nice this morning. But David doesn't just make tree huggers and environmentalists angry with these lyrics. He also makes some pagan nations angry too. How so? Well, this is a polemical psalm against the Canaanite god Baal. Those places on the map that David mentioned in verse 6, Lebanon and Syrian, they were enemy territory. The voice of Yahweh, which is mentioned seven times in this psalm, that voice stirred up the storm in the sea and sent it smack dab into the middle of Canaanite territory, the enemies of Israel, up north of Israel, behind enemy lines. And it's a critical jab at the Canaanites in their religion. Yahweh, if you will, is poking them in the ribs with his voice and saying, Hey, your God, Baal, he's not the God of the storm. I am. I speak and hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes happen. Israel's neighbors, the Canaanites, worshipped Baal among many other gods. Baal was considered to be the god of the storm, the god of thunder, lightning, rain, and fertility. In fact, some Canaanite texts actually mention Baal as having seven peals of thunder. And that's probably why David mentions the voice of Yahweh seven times. He's making fun of the Canaanites and their god, Baal. But the Canaanites also believe that Baal had a girlfriend that he was very sweet on and very serious about. Her name was Ashtoreth. Here's a cute profile picture of them. Look at them. Ladies and gentlemen, you're king and queen of the prom this year. Baal has his hand in the air. Usually when you find a Baal figurine, there was, uh, he would have a lightning bolt in his hand. I assume this one's broken off, but that's what he always had because he's the god of the storm. The Canaanites believe that whenever Baal and Ashtoreth were intimate, then rains would come down and water their crops. But the Canaanites didn't believe that you just wait on Baal to send rain. You don't just pray to Baal, send rain, we need crops, we're hungry. They didn't believe in let go and let Baal. They believed that people should encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to be intimate by being intimate themselves. And so the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution. They had prostitutes available at their shrines, and you could worship Baal and Ashtoreth by engaging with a prostitute. You see now why this is a temptation that the Israelites always struggled with throughout their history. Because the Canaanites said, hey, why don't you come to church with us? It's a little bit different than y'all's. And that would cause, when they would engage with the uh, sacred prostitute at the temple, that would, they believed, would cause Baal and Ashtoreth to do their thing and be intimate. And then the rains would come down and water their crops. And so Psalm 29 is a political and a polemical psalm. David is attacking Canaanite culture, Canaanite politics, Canaanite religion. David basically sent an email to the Canaanites and said, Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, Baal is a loser. Take that. Yahweh is the real God of the storm. And this is important to note. 
any Israelites that were dabbling with Canaanite religion would be reminded as they heard Psalm 29 in public worship, they would be reminded that all Yahweh has to do is just speak and he can wipe out half of the ancient Near East if he wants to. Psalm 29 is confronting the tempting idols in Israel. It's confronting those who want to mingle with their Canaanite neighbors and go to church with them. But Psalm 29 is also a psalm that confronts our idols. Just like some Israelites were tempted to go worship Baal at Canaanite temples, which a lot of people did in the books of First and Second Kings. They would go and engage in sacred prostitution. Psalm 29 gets in our face as it did them, and it confronts us about our idols. David is exposing idols in Psalm 29, these Canaanite idols, as he tells us about Yahweh, but he's confronting ours too. But what exactly is an idol? Is an idol just a wooden little trinket like this? Maybe you would have a little ashtoreth on your nightstand and you would worship her? I guess it could be that. It obviously was for the Canaanites. But like here in Psalm 29, it could be worshiping these two individuals at their temple, but it can also be something else. An idol can be anything that we obsess over. An idol can be anything that we obsess over, and it becomes more important to us than the most important person in the universe, Jesus Tim Keller says this in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? That last sentence is tough, isn't it? Let's read it together so that you get convicted too, because I am, okay? (laughs) I don't want to be the only one that gets exposed by God's law this morning. I want you all to share in that, okay? So let's read that last one. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart. I highly recommend this book. Tim Keller shows us that idols take good, God-given things and make them ultimate, supreme things. It could be anything, work, family, spouse, kids, career. Anytime a good, God-given thing becomes an ultimate thing that you have to have in order to live, in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, then that's when you show that you are, at least in that moment, an idolater. And who wants to be that? Psalm 29 wants us to be a church that gets honest about our idols. So here's a crazy idea. Let's start confessing our idols to one another. What about that? 
I know that's not a good church growth strategy according to the experts. I've never read it in a church growth book. Confess your idols and your church will grow. It might run people off if we do that. If we open up and get honest with one another and we confess our idols, people will be offended. If you come clean with what you struggle with and that you don't have it all together, there are self-righteous people who will be offended. How dare you talk about that? The reality, though, is that every self-righteous person has the same idols in their own heart. But if we open up and get honest with one another and confess our idols, we're walking the path of Jesus. What's the alternative to that? Become a mega church where everyone is fake and lies about their problems. I'm not saying every mega church does that, but we could become a mega church and be fake. Who wants that? Let's get real. Let's get real with one another. Let's get real with the real Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible, who says, come, buy and eat. Let's get low before the Lord and continue to invite the Holy Spirit to come and shine his light on the darkest places of our hearts and say, show us your glory. We all have uh, unevangelized continents in our hearts that need the voice of the Lord to sweep over and level all of these uh, forests of idolatry that we have set up. We have unevangelized places in our heart that need the gospel, need the voice of the Lord to come through and just wipe it all out. And Jesus is willing to do that and he's gentle and he's kind and we'll find freedom if we can open up our heart and say, Jesus, speak into my heart and let your voice just level all of the idols that I have in here that nobody knows about. And now I'm going to go find a trusted friend, trusted brother or sister, and I'm going to confess some of these things to them. Confessing our idols, does that sound like fun? Probably not. Because, I mean, who wants to be exposed? Who wants the private things in our hearts that we get joy and comfort from that nobody else knows? Who wants that out? Who wants to admit that they have an idol problem? Yikes. Because that'll be embarrassing, won't it? But here's the better question to ask. Who wants to be healed? Who wants to be set free? Who wants to laugh and dance their way home to eternity? In order for healing to come, in order for renewal and revival to come to grace, we have to be honest with one another. We have to get real with one another. We have to get real with the real God of Psalm 29 and open up our hearts and say, speak and let your voice do what it does. So let's do this. With close, trusted friends... If you don't have any here, maybe you have another Christian friend or pray that you would get connected with people. With close, trusted friends, maybe in your Sunday school classes, different things, let's admit our idols to one another. Crazy, right? Someone might ask you, hey, how was church today? And you can say, we admitted our idols to one another. It was wonderful. Do you have a church? You should come. It was awesome. Let's be that kind of church. Let's talk about our idols so that they lose their power. So in whatever little meetings, Sunday school classes you're having, let's open up about our idols. Let's say something like this, and you fill in the blank. You tell this trusted people, friend, I'm going to confess now that I feel like if I have blank, then I'll finally feel like my life has meaning. I'll finally feel like I have value. I'll finally feel significant and secure. 
Let me ask you, what is that for you this morning? What idol have you looked to for meaning? What idol have you looked to for value? What idol have you looked to for significance and security? Confess it. Confess it to Jesus. Confess it to others. And if we do that, we'll discover that we'll get some traction here for healing and renewal and revival. Let me ask you this morning. Where do you need the voice of the Lord to come sweeping over your heart, tearing down plots of idols along the way? What are those cherished sins, those thoughts that you go to? It could be thoughts of like bitterness that, you, that comfort you in a weird way. We don't know what it is. When we're bitter and angry, we kind of nurse that grudge. That can be an idol that comforts us in a weird way. What are those desires you have? What are those secrets, those things that you go to and you're like, ah, this gives me value and feeling. I feel alive when I think about this, when this happens. What do you need the voice of the Lord to come sweeping over your heart, tearing up plots, forests, continents of idols along the way? What is it for you? Confess it. Confess it to Jesus. Confess it to others. It'll be embarrassing, and yes, it will sting. But that's how our idols lose their power over our lives. Your idols will lose their power. They'll lose their grip on your heart when you confess them to someone else. They'll get weaker and weaker and weaker because you've dragged it out into the light. And idols hate being in the light. Idols thrive in darkness. They thrive in secret places. They thrive in the secret places of our heart that nobody but us and Jesus know about. They love living in the dark. That's how they lose their power. It's how healing comes. It's how the Holy Spirit starts cleaning out the junk in our hearts. It's when the voice of the Lord comes sweeping over the acres in our hearts. And when we confess our idols, here's the best part, okay? We get Jesus. That's the best part about confessing your idols. You get Jesus. You get the one whom your heart loves. It's not like you confess your idols and then that's it. Okay, go about my day. No, you get Jesus. That's not bad, is it? When we're honest and confess our need of a redeemer, guess what? We get Jesus. He shows up. And isn't that what you really want? Isn't he what you really want? You're chasing all those idols, all those feelings, all those secret things because you really want him. You don't really want that idol, do you? You really want Jesus. And when you confess sin, you get him. When you confess sin, you get him. See? Repentance and confession is not that bad, is it? Listen, this is your God, Christian, the God of Psalm 29. He comes in power to uproot all the idols of our hearts. His glory, his weightiness, his importance in our lives thunders. His voice thunders, his voice is full of majesty, his voice breaks trees apart, his voice makes Lebanon and Syrian skip like calves, like Lebanon and Syrian, these lands are just doing their thing and the voice of the Lord comes and they're like, whoa, and they're out of here. He flashes forth 
lightning bolts when he speaks. He shakes the wilderness. His voice makes deer give birth prematurely. His voice strips forest bare. How do you respond to a God of this magnitude who just by speaking can topple over the famous cedars of Lebanon? These, these trees were huge. You respond to him by crying, glory. You respond to him by crying, glory, weighty, heavy, most important, preeminent. Ray Ortland said, please show me your glory is our greatest prayer. It is asking the Lord to blow us away with his grace and mercy to the undeserving so that we worship him and live for him and obey him with joyous new boldness. And the watching world begins to think, my life has fallen apart and I need no one less than God to pick up the pieces so that church is where I'll go because God is obviously there. We want the watching world, people in your life, people in this city on the central coast, to hear that the real Jesus is here so that they come here. How about that? That's why, please show me your glory is our greatest prayer. Because when we see God's glory, he blows us away with his grace and mercy so that we worship him and live for him and obey him with joyous new boldness. Let me ask you, where do you need to live for Jesus with a joyous new boldness? Where has the Spirit been speaking to you this morning from his word? Let's pray this summer that the glimmer of our idols fade away as we see his glory. And then let's just be in awe of Jesus again and just marvel. I mean, just let your jaw drop open. That's your homework this week. Every day this week, I want you to go outside, since we're looking at creation in this passage, go outside and take in creation and just marvel at the God who made it all. Find a tree and look at it and examine it in detail. The colors the way the leaves are, and just marvel and then say, whoa, man, that's heavy. And go to Pismo Beach and look out over the ocean and say, glory, weighty. Feel the grass between your toes and say, whoa. See a sunset and just say, glory. Get out in creation and marvel at your God. Heather and I went to, uh, and with, our, with the girls, um, to Sedona, Arizona, a couple weeks ago. We were just staring at the colors of the rocks one night, Heather and I, in this area, and it was the red and the oranges and the yellows and the greens, and it was marvelous. We're just taking it in. And as we're taking it all in one night at sunset, I said to Heather, there's only one word that we can say to all of this. Glory. And that's what David says in verse 9. That's what all the angelic beings in heaven say when they see Jesus, when they hear his voice, they cry, glory, weighty, heavy. And you might be tempted to say glory when you hear what David says next. So get your glory ready because verse 10 is going to knock your socks off. Look at verse 10. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. May Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with justice. It could also be translated as Yahweh will give strength to his people. Yahweh will bless his people with peace. 
So David tells us that Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. This word is only used here and in Genesis 6. Yahweh is enthroned over the flood that covered the entire earth. He sits as king forever, never to be voted out, never to be impeached, never to lose the throne. And get this, it's this God, the God of Psalm 29, who gives strength to his people. I mentioned it in several weeks ago in a sermon, just a phrase that I've been clinging to where Paul tells Timothy, everybody deserted me, but the Lord stood by my side and strengthened me. And that's been my prayer over the last month or two. I've just been saying, stand by me and strengthen me. Stand by me and strengthen me. When I pray that, when you pray that, it's the God of Psalm 29 who is standing by you and giving you strength to go through whatever it is that you're going through. The God who speaks and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes happen, this is the God who gives you strength, Christian. When you are weak and you feel like you cannot go on, the God of Psalm 29 comes to give you the strength you need. And that means you can't do this on your own. You cannot willpower your way through sorrow and trouble and suffering. You cannot positive confess your way out of trouble and sorrow and suffering. You need strength outside of you, and it's found in Jesus, the word who thunders. Maybe what you're going through right now is happening to remind you again you're desperate and you're needy and that you are weak, and that you cannot do life on your own. Maybe what's happening in your life right now is God getting your attention again so that you'll seek his face, and so that you'll pray, and so you'll say, I need you. I need strength. I cannot do this on my own. I've been acting like I can do it on my own because I haven't been praying I haven't been involved in community, confessing my idols. I haven't been reading your word. So yes, I've been acting, Jesus, like I can do this on my own. Maybe everything's happening so that you get woken up again and say, I need you. I'm going to seek your face. And it's this God, the God of Psalm 29, who gives strength. And David also says peace to his people. Peace is the Hebrew word for shalom. It means wholeness, wellness, harmony. After the voice of the Lord thunders and uproots the idols of our hearts, we finally have peace. We've gone to those idols for peace. They let you down every time, don't they? I mean, you, you get a little bit at first, you're like, this is good. This idol is delivering on the promise. And then it turns on you and sticks a knife in your gut. But after the voice of the Lord thunders and uproots the idols of our hearts, we finally have the peace that we've been looking for. And all is well. And we see Jesus in all of his glory. And our souls are quieted. Do you need to quiet your soul this morning? David Pallison said, Quiet your noisy self to know the peace that passes understanding. Dying to your restless, fretful, and irritable ways does not come easily. There is no technique, automatic formula, or pat answer. To compose your soul means literally to level it. Bulldoze the building site. Run a harrow across the rutted, bumpy field. Get a grip. When Jesus said, peace be still to the stormy lake, he smoothed the turbulence. 
To quiet your soul means to silence the noise and the tumult. Shh to your desires, fears, opinions, anxieties, agendas, and irritabilities. You need Jesus to pull off a coup d'etat in your heart, to overthrow the powers that be in order to establish the reign of him who is. How do you quiet your noisy self? How do you experience the peace that passes understanding? How do you die to your restless, fretful, irritable ways? How do you compose your soul? How do you say, shh, to your desires, your fears, your opinions, your anxieties, your agendas, and your irritabilities? You pray, King Jesus, please show me your glory. And show me your glory is most clearly seen in Jesus dying for us. The cross is where we see God's glory in all its sweet splendor. It says Jesus comes down from heaven, making himself nothing that he displays his glory. On the cross, we see the deepest revelation of the very heart of God. Jesus laying down his own life for people like us, dying in our place for our sins, for our idols. So the glory of God is seen in Jesus, and it's seen most clearly at the cross. The weightiness, heaviness, radiance of God, the glory of God shines forth most brilliantly at the cross where Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. So when we pray, show us your glory, we're praying for God to show us more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his kindness, more of Jesus. And who doesn't need more of that? How can I get in on more of that? I just say, show me your glory, Lord. So why not respond to Psalm 29 today by saying, Show me your glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that though you are all powerful, almighty, you just speak and Lord, you just wipe out forests. You're also the most tender, most gentle, most kind person in the universe. Not to good people, not to self-righteous people, but to sinners, to weak, needy people like us. And we thank you for that. May your spirit blow as you speak your word. May you, as you speak the gospel to our hearts, may the spirit uproot the the cedars of Lebanon-like idols that we have and rip them out. And may we see you, Jesus, in all of your glory and just be mesmerized and be in awe of you and just say, whoa, whoa, glory. Do it, we ask, because we need it. In your name we pray.